G'day Dons fans and welcome to the round 22 edition of Don the Stat. It was the win that felt like a loss on Saturday afternoon. A 30-point lead was thrown away as West Coast hit the front late in the last quarter, only for Kyle Langford to save the day and give Essendon a one-point victory at Marvel Stadium. I'm Jonathan Walsh and I'm joined in the Don the Stat studio by my co-host Ian Hume. Humey, how are you mate? Yeah, look, things are going well in, in my end of the studio in my bedroom. Um, already halfway through term three at school, so things are really just flying by. Um, I'd also like to say it's my youngest first birthday this Saturday, so happy birthday, Oscar. Hopefully the Bummers will get a win for your special day. How about yourself? How's things? Yeah, well, you kind of ruined the illusion there, mate. I was trying to pretend we're this big, sophisticated operation with our own studio, um, but you, you've destroyed that one. I'm I'm good. Happy birthday to Oscar, of course. It's uh, exciting for you and the family, mate. Um, but yeah, no, I'm good. Another, another week's ticked by um, in a blink of an eye. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, to going to the footy on Saturday, albeit with a little bit of trepidation, I have to admit. Yeah, well, I mean, we're getting close to the end of the season and this could be the sort of the third last preview that we do for the year, hopefully there's a one or two more at, at the very least to come. But yeah, we'll, we'll see how we go. Uh, before we get into West Coast, I want to say thanks to Kane Knights, Matt Becker, Andreas Sakaris, and James Miller for signing up to our Patreon in the last week. Uh, Jono's been uh, especially uploading some great video content that's available at the analyst here. So it's a really great time to get involved. I, I can tell by the way that he, he's been bringing them up to me that he's really enjoying putting them together and, and sharing his thoughts with video behind them. So I expect more of that to come. Um, as always, there's a link to the Patreon in the description of this episode. Yeah, thanks to to new Patreons and those that have been on board for a while now. It's uh, yeah, it has been good fun, mate. It, it, whilst I don't ever like losing, uh, and of course, um, I, I do like trying to work out where it all went wrong. So um, I, I, I do nerd out a little bit on, on games like what happened on Saturday, and and it does lead to creating some some good content or, or hope, what I hope is good content. So. Um, so, yeah, no, be, definitely been enjoying that. And uh, if I could find the time to do more of it, I would. Yeah, well, that's the dream really, isn't it? But, you know, maybe a few years down the track when we actually have a studio and and we go from there. But anyway, enough of the uh, self-indulgence from us. Let's actually get on to the, the West Coast game. Now, I wasn't one of these people, but there were obviously a lot of Don's fans who had that underlying fear that the Bombers would get done against the bottom team. Uh, well, I was clearly wrong with Essendon falling behind with less than two minutes remaining, only for some excellent work from Parrish, Menzi and Langford to get us back in front. And then the match with a, a very uncomfortable one point victory. So, I mean, we said there was be a lot of danger in thinking that this would be an easy kill. Clearly by only winning by one point, it, it was obviously a massive danger game and, and they just got out of jail there. Did you get the sense that the players felt like the result was just going to happen, particularly when they got five goals up just after halftime? Yeah, it certainly felt that way at the ground. Uh, one thing that I I probably didn't appreciate, uh, well, sorry, no, it's it's the reverse of that. Uh, I left the ground thinking, geez, West Coast really took it up to us and and you know played out of their skins a little bit, and and to a sense they did. But what I didn't really notice until I dug into the replay was just how how bad we were uh, at the same time and and how far we dropped away. There were some. Signs early that we weren't entirely switched on. West Coast went coast to coast from the first kick in, so from our first behind. And and that was largely due to Elijah Sardis at his first game just being out of position in the kick-in zone. And and that's not on him. It, uh, I sort of more put that down to our leaders not being switched on and, and, and keeping an eye out for the young bloke and, and making sure that he was set up properly. That first quarter was pretty scrappy and, and there was very little movement inside 50 and, and you know, we just sort of sat back and, and allowed West Coast to control the footy. So it was, a, it was a pretty dour watch. But, and you know, over the course of the season, we scored a goal 25% of the time we go inside 50, which is ranked fourth in the competition. So so when we get it in, we've been pretty effective at kicking goals. In that first quarter, we only scored a goal 6% of the time we went in. So it was it's just really frustrating to watch. And then the second quarter was a lot better. We scored a goal from 60% of our entries, so went well above our season average. And and we just did a better job of closing down space when we didn't have the ball. We we did a really good job around the contest and, and one contested ball. And, and then we were able to, to put it on the scoreboard. And then we kicked that first goal of the third quarter. I think from memory, we, we won a center clearance and, and Peter Wright ended up on the end of one. And and then, you know, West Coast, to their credit, they sort of just turned it into a bit of an arm wrestle. They got some numbers behind the ball. They slow play down. And 
and we just kind of went into complacency mode. I felt, you know, besides Parrish, we weren't winning a lot of contested ball. The work rate was way down. It was just a, a really lazy performance. And, you know, it was a game that at halftime we really should have gone on to win by 60-plus points, but we just allowed West Coast to go at 80% disposal efficiency for the game. They averaged 74% across the season. So, you know, we, we just gave it to them far too easy. And, and other than that second quarter, we didn't put them under any pressure at all. West Coast had 59 turnovers for the game. That's the second fewest turnovers against us this season. So we just weren't putting any pressure on to to get the ball back from them. And, and you know, opposition teams have been averaging closer to 67 against us. And we had seven fewer intercepts than our season average. So, yeah, just uh, it, it was a game where I remember at the end of the the West Coast game early in the season over, over in Perth, uh, there was a couple of players who remarked, uh, post game that you you get what you you put in or, or you get the result you deserve I think was the comment that a couple of them made and uh and you know I think that was a, a bit of an indication that the coaches had had sort of got them on edge and and reminded them that they needed to work really hard well I think this was another game where we got the result we deserved or, or arguably didn't deserve um we we just didn't come to play and 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 didn't put in a performance for long enough that that warranted um you know, any other result really. Yeah. It, it may have even been that, that, that first result where they, you know, they put West coast away by 50 points and then sort of won every quarter, maybe also played into that complacency a little bit, knowing that they'd done it before against that side earlier in the season. And, you know, thinking it's just going to happen again if they, they do sort of similar. And obviously West coast came with a different plan and, and applied themselves probably a lot uh, harder than they did in that previous result. Uh, going into the game, the big threats in your view were Bailey Williams and, and Tim Kelly. Um, one we curtailed quite well and one was their arguably their best player. And the, the coaches also saw it that way. Uh, Bailey Williams uh, only had nine disposals. That's his second lowest of the season and 12 hitouts, which was his lowest of the year. So we really ran Phillips head to head with him. Uh, Phillips attended 70% of the center bounces and I think really showed his experience against an opponent who's still sort of finding his way in the game. Uh, the other player was Tim Kelly, and he was clearly going to be their biggest midfield challenge for our group. Um, if you look at his season averages, he he went above average for disposals and, and score involvements, although he was down on clearances. But it was really noticeable towards the end of the game how much they were relying on him to be the man to win it for them. And in really crucial moments, I thought both Archie Perkins and Darcy Parrish were able to restrict him enough, particularly at centre bounce, that allowed us to take the momentum away from West Coast and sneak away with a win. Yeah, good little wrap up there, mate. Um, Bailey Williams didn't have much of an impact at all, really, did he? Hit outs were fifty-two to thirteen for the game, clearances twenty-nine to twenty. You know, our rucks did what they needed to do. I thought Phillips was the the best ruckman on the ground, and I thought Brian continued to show that he's got some really exciting attributes. So, you know, we were able to to double team Williams and and get the job done there. Uh, you, you touched on the fact that Tim Kelly was their leading vote getter in the coaches' votes. He, he got eight along with Kyle Langford and, and just ahead of Parrish on seven. So, yeah, he had a really good game. And, and you're right, Perkins and Parrish worked well together to nullify his influence at key moments late in the game, either directly on him or or um, or sort of opposite him. And, and you know, they were, they were both able to slow him down or, and or win contested ball. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I thought Kelly and, and Duggan as well both had good games in the midfield for them. And, and you know, Kelly gets a couple of goals and, and was was definitely their best player. But um, but I think that the result was less about what Tim Kelly did and, and more just our, you know, our lack of effort to to defend the ground and, and win the ball back off them. Yeah. Well, you, you sort of mentioned just before then that we, we did do well at the contested aspects of the game. So 35 more contested possessions. And as you mentioned, nine more. Uh, stoppage clearances in particular, I think center clearances ended up uh, even. Um, it's for only the first fourth time this year, we actually turned stoppage clearance advantage into a score advantage. So scores from stoppage were 26 to 13. Now we've only won stoppage clearance nine times this season and in only four occasions have we actually won scores from stoppage. And for, the, for those playing at home and some of the conversations we've had this week, uh, Darcy Parrish was present for all those games where he won stoppage and, scores from stoppage. So his his value is, is immense in that space, just being able to generate uh, scoring chains. Yeah, the scoring from stoppages is becoming a, a really important part of the game. I, I think for, you know, in, in recent years, it's all been about scoring from turnovers and that's obviously still important. But 
uh, an ability to to be able to win the ball from stoppage where you do have a bit more open space. There's generally fewer numbers in front of or behind the ball. Um, you know, do, does make it easily easier for for it to score if you can get the ball out. You know, on the outside and, and away from those clearances. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised uh, when you said that. There's only been four times where we've won stoppage scores this season, and, and Dusty Parrish has played in each of those. But um, plus thirty-five was our our biggest clearance differential. Sorry, contested possession differential for the year. So, and, and you you know you'd expect that to be a dominant part of our game. It's it's ultimately the difference I think between the win and the loss. That with along with Cole Langford kicking five, but um, yeah, the rest of our, our game besides that didn't function. It's probably worth noting plus nine at stoppages is also our best performance this season. So, you know, whilst some parts of our game have been faltering post by contested ball and stoppage, you know, we had those nightmare games against Geelong and Bulldogs who beat us up, but, but otherwise that part of our game has been, been really, really sound. Yeah. And we'll get to it later in the show, but that's a part of our game. That's going to have to be really on top coming up against North Melbourne this week, but we'll, we'll cover that in a bit more detail later. Um, we also spoke spoke a lot last week about changing the way that we've defended and, and sort of going through what that's looked like. And we've gone from defending from the back to pushing up harder. And the issues has is, is caused us in terms of scores from transition. So our West Coast have averaged six points a game from defensive 50 transition prior to this game. Here they scored five goals from defensive 50 turnover. So five times bigger just in that, as well as they kicked one from a directly from a kick in and they also kicked one from a ball up in our defense in their defensive 50. So seven of their 11 goals came from chains initiated in our forward 50. Um, prior to this game, the most we'd given up from turnovers in defensive 50 were, were three goals against both Brisbane and Carlton. You spoke last week about having discipline in our defensive setup. What went wrong in terms of defending the full ground transition on Saturday? Yeah. Early in the season, we would basically retreat back, get numbers behind the ball, have a really solid foundation back there and win the ball back in our defensive 50, make the, the ground big for ourselves to be able to move the ball back down the ground. And and we we were pretty good at, at being able to turn that into scores ourselves. So so whilst throughout the year, we've typically allowed teams to transition against us, so so go from our forward line into their own, we've prevented scores and, and you know, we – We've put their their forward 50 entries under pressure. We've forced them wide and then we've intercepted in our own defensive 50. Prior to Saturday, you have to go back to round two against the Suns for the most goals we've conceded from end-to-end transition or, or coast-to-coast, as, as some people like to call it. Uh, we conceded four goals in that game. One was from a stoppage in our forward line, uh, one from a turnover in our forward line, and then two goals from kick-ins. On Saturday, we conceded seven. So that's seven times West Coast went from our forward line into their own and kicked a goal. And, uh, and uh, you know, you're right, and, and uh, we've been talking about it for a few weeks now. We, we've changed the way that we are defending to try and win the ball back further up the ground. But that what we saw on Saturday wasn't a team that's adjusting how they defend and and an opposition being able to to pick some holes in it because it's not quite right yet. What we saw on Saturday was just a lack of a complete lack of effort and, and intent to to get you know to work hard enough to set up defensively and yeah there, there were some elements of some young players like the Sardis example I, I mentioned there were a couple of times where Jake Kelly was in the wrong position and and you know he's an experienced player but he's not an experienced winger um, so he got caught out a couple of times but I think. Overall, we just switched off and and didn't work anywhere near hard enough. And then back to that line, you know, you sort of um, you get the result you deserve. Well, that meant West Coast went forward seven times from from their defensive fifty and were able to kick goals from it. Yeah, it really felt like we just conceded the entire middle portion of the ground between the arcs. And uh, instead of previous years, as previous uh, weeks, as you said, we we had numbers behind the ball. We just didn't have that a lot of one on ones, a lot of space, and it just allowed, as you said. West Coast when they did go forward to to pick us apart there. And so obviously big concern going into next week. But, you know, we did win and there's always major positives to be taken out of games at all. What what do you see as some of the positives there? Yeah, well, I, I hope and, and and only those who are at the club would know, but I, I hope this is an opportunity for us to or our coaching group to be able to demonstrate to the players what does happen when you switch off and and you know, it doesn't matter who you're playing against. If you if you're not working hard enough, then you can can get found out. We'll only know how well that message was communicated and and whether that sunk in. 
you know, I, I suspect at the end of the game on Saturday. But beyond that, we got to see Elijah Sardis at AFL level for the first time. Yeah, he looked a, a, a bit lost early playing at half forward. He, he sort of ran a little bit in circles and uh, that's okay. That's a, that's a position that he hasn't really played in before, or, you know, at least not um, at senior level in, in the VFL. Or, and, um, you yeah, know, so... Um, you know, no, no, no queries or question marks about that. It's sort of par for the course, really. But he worked his way into it, and and I think will be better for that first taste. And uh, I think the the thing that really impressed me was his work rate. Uh, you know, he he really does run and 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 work hard to to get from contest to contest. He it just took him a little while to pick up the speed of the game and and work out where to run playing as a half forward, as you know, as opposed to a you know a center bounce midfielder as he'd been playing in the VFL. Uh, Langford and Wright got another game under their belt together. I, I don't think they've quite worked out how to play with one another yet. And it, it's actually quite frustrating that they've both been kicking goals. You know, that the, they're both hitting the scoreboard pretty regularly. You know, admittedly, Langford a bit more than Wright and, and Langford in particular had a really good game, but they just get in each other's way uh, more often than they don't. Uh, I think only time fixes that, but I think they're both used to, you know, we've gone from, from a situation where for two years Peter Wright was our main focal point up forward, uh, he he was out of the side and, and Langford became the man and and now they're both back there used to being the the primary focus, uh, and and you know they they're both sort of see ball go after ball type of operators. They they just need to learn when to decoy and 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 when to to support one another or, or get out of one another's way. Uh, so only time fixes that, and, and you know, hopefully, with each game they play together, we see um, we see a little bit more from them. Although BCT played an, another really good game down back, it, it was probably the key defender that that stood out the most and, and held his own. Uh, and in in Ridley's absence, he's starting to show that he's got some you know real intercept nous about his game. He's, he's not just a a one percenter defender who who can spoil and, and get a fist in. He can he can also read the ball in air, take front position and, and take marks. And probably the last one, mate, I really like Nick Hines' game. I, I thought he worked hard both offensively and defensively. I, I did mention it on on Twitter or X uh during the week or as part of my review that uh, I think he's starting to learn how to use his speed defensively. He's he's always been really good using it offensively and put the ball under his arm and take a bounce and and, and carry the footy. But I think he's now learned how to close space defensively and 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 close down opponents and and actually turn that into an, an offensive weapon as well. We saw him, um, you know, get across and, and take an intercept mark in the first quarter. And and the bit that I liked about that piece of play was he then waited for Elijah Sardis to to lead back at him into some space and and that little short kick over the top just to to let the young kid really get his hands on the footy for the first time. I think he might have had a handball or two before that, but uh, it was his first chance to really, um, uh, you know, get a clean disposal. And, and that was the one that he kicked inside 50 to to Guelphie. So it was a nice little bit of, of leadership there by Nick Hine just to recognise the, the game moment and, and recognise the young fella and, and getting the ball. Um, what about you, mate? Was there anything else that stood out to you? Yeah, look, I think you've been pretty thorough there with the positives. I think if I was going to add one more, it would be we got another game uh, into Cox as a, as a defender. Um, he he didn't really stand out in the game, but I also think that in, in many cases it's it's good to be a defender that's being unnoticed. It means you're not making mistakes that, that's costing the side and his opponent didn't really have much of an influence on the game. And, you know, right at the end there, he's blocking Allen at the end to allow BZT to take that mark without you know, causing interference um, was quite impressive as well and, and shows an, an element of defensive nous that, you know, if he's going to, that's going to be his position, that's what he needs to be able to demonstrate. Yeah, I think the thing I liked about his game last week and, and then again more so um, on Saturday was just his cleanness by hand. And so he was he was really clean in, in, in ground balls and then was getting the ball on quickly. He has had that little bit of a habit of, slowing play down and, and getting caught with the footy. I, I didn't see that on Saturday. I thought he was he made some really good decisions once he won the ball to to give the ball to to guys who are in better positions to be able to move the ball forward. So um yeah some some nice signs there. Cool um mate let's have a look at, at what was in the news this weekend. Uh sorry this week I should say we created our, our own little bit of news within our own sphere of influence. You did some analysis on our kicking inside 50 this week. Yeah it was all sort of born out of the the Darcy Parish conversation that seems to be endless on, uh, you know, social media and, and the forums at the moment regarding how effective he actually is. And obviously with these contract negotiations ongoing, it, you know, it, it's a constant 
topic of discussion. And we're not going to spend the whole time talking about Darcy. I think we wanted to look at how effective our players are at going inside 50 and and what is the result of, of each of our players when they do kick inside 50. And real again, thanks to the friend of the show, Mike Reed, for helping us in getting that data. He's been really great support for us this year. And a lot of what you hear is uh, down to the work that he does behind the scenes. So again, thanks, Mike for your work. Um, but just looking at the data, there's some pretty interesting numbers there. And I did share it on, on Twitter. If you go into my profile, you can actually gain access to the raw data if you're interested in, in having a look at that and making your own ass- assumptions from that. Um, but we remain focused on the percent of time that a Bombers player kicks inside 50 and that kick resulting in a directly in a Bombers score. So we limited to those who've had at least 10 kicks inside 50 during the season. Uh, surprisingly, the player that was most likely to lead to a score was Sam Wiedemann. So he's had 17 kicks inside 50 this year and 53% of those have led to a score. And that's 9% higher than any other player. Now, his overall numbers in terms of raw kicks inside 50 are a lot lower than the next players we're going to be talking about. So that may play a part in it, but you know, it does suggest that he's a good user going inside 50. Uh, the next three players, you know, if I asked Essendon fans who they thought were the best kicks going inside 50, I reckon these would be three of the first five names that would be suggested. So uh, Redmond was next, uh, and that was followed by Martin and then Perkins, and, and they were all between 44 to 42%. Um, well, if you look at Perkins particularly in terms of his kicks leading to goals, not just scores, uh, 30% of his kicks going inside 50 uh, lead to goals. So he's had 62 kicks inside 50 this year. So 30% of that means he's, he's generated 18 goals from those kicks. Um, and so he has, he has the third most kicks inside 50 after Parrish and Merritt this season. Uh, the only other player above 40% is Nick Hind. Uh, surprisingly, uh, the sixth player on the list is Andrew Phillips. Um, so it's, it's someone we'll miss there for his, not, not what we expected, but his inside 50 ball use in terms of generating scores. If you then go look at, you know, the regular midfield rotation, they're actually all pretty similar. So Merritt, Parrish, Caldwell, Setterfield and Hobbs, uh, of their kicks inside 50, generally between 31 and 33% of the time, it'll lead to a score. So that's a that's a fairly consistent between those five players. Uh, the outlier in that group, though, is Dylan Shields. So only 26% of his kicks inside 50 leading to a score this year. The other ones that might surprise people in terms of the low end uh, Jake Stringer, who we only score from 24% of the time we kick inside 50. Although I, I do think part of that is that he's often taking shots from outside 50 that either fall short or go out of bounds. Um, and so therefore his numbers are down. I imagine when he's actually pinpointing a target, he's probably pretty effective. But surprising to me was the lowest percentage of anyone who had 10 more kicks was actually Sam Durham. So only 17% of his kicks inside 50 have actually resulted in a score that that really surprised me there, I don't think he's the best user on our list, but I didn't think he was that ineffective in generating scores going inside 50. So apologies, listeners. I've thrown a lot of numbers at you there. I'll, I'll make sure I link to the the data in, in the show notes if you want to have a look at it yourself. Um, but I guess pretty interesting nonetheless. And obviously we don't have previous years as a context, but what stood out to you when you saw those numbers, Jono? Yeah, I was surprised to see Wiedemann at the top when you shared it with me. But then thinking through it, logic suggests when he's getting the ball and has the opposite the opportunity to kick inside fifty, it's it's by virtue of him obviously winning it, and and in doing so, he's dragged a key defender out of our forward fifty and created space behind him. He is a good field kick, so you know it, I guess that's the the benefit of having a player like him or or Harrison Jones uh, at centre half forward that that when they do win the footy, they've taken another key defender who would otherwise be intercepting or, or going second man up on, you know, Mangford or Stringer or, or Wright. So, yeah, it, it does make sense that that him getting outside 50 and, and winning the footy would mean that there's a little bit more space for him to kick into. Uh, Redman has 51 inside 50s for the season. He's kicked seven goals, four. So I'm assuming that, that most of his scores are coming from kicks outside 50. So, you know, I, I think a, a rather large reason for him being so high is that he's actually doing the scoring himself, not so much hitting up targets. Uh, I, I was expecting to see Perkins and Martin at, at one and two. So, you know, they're the two that I would want kicking the ball inside 50 along with Zach Merritt. I, I guess Perkins and Martin are really good at winning the ball in the corridor and, and effectively having the whole 50 to work with where, where Zach 
you know, he gets undone by being a bit more aggressive with his entries. You, you, we, we do see him take on some some really difficult kicks that that do come off uh, quite often, but but also lead to to the opposition getting the ball just just through the sheer difficulty of, of what he's trying to do. And and then he's also often kicking inside fifty from wider parts of the ground just through through the nature of his role. Uh, you know, which which makes the exercise a little bit more difficult as well. So. Um, so yeah, a couple of surprises there, mate. But then you know also a lot of things that that made a whole lot of sense. Yeah, well, as you say, Zach's number surprised me a little bit too. I think he, if you ask Essendon fans, he would be the number one player most people would want kicking inside fifty. But you know, sort of talking about midfielders and, and scoring opportunities, he did some analysis of your own this week, Jono. What did you find? Yeah, I, I did. the The term goal kicking midfielder is one that gets thrown a lot. Uh, or thrown around a lot, and I—it's uh, one that I've been thinking about a fair bit too over over recent weeks and months. And I've held a bit of a theory that they don't really exist, or or if they do, that they're quite rare in in modern footy. I think you know there there are wingers that kick goals, there there are mids who rotate forward and kick goals. You know, guys like Shy, Shy Bolton, uh, Christian Petrarca's played a lot as a forward this year and, and hit the scoreboard, but but I. I don't necessarily think that or I didn't think there'd been guys who were playing predominantly as a midfielder and hitting the scoreboard on a on a regular basis. So I did some digging and, and I took the top 50 midfielders this season by average center bounce attendances. I, I figure that was the, you know, we don't have privy to you know, the, the data of, of who's spending how much, you know, percentage of game time in the midfield versus other positions. So I figure if if they're spending uh, a, a lot of, or they're going to a lot of centre bounces. Then, then I figured that was the best differentiator to determine the midfielders that are spending most of their time in, in that part of the ground rather than playing forward. So, from an, an Essendon perspective, we had two in the top fifty, which you know are the obvious ones in Darcy Parish and Zach Merritt. And I, I wasn't entirely surprised by what I saw. There's, there's not a single player in that top fifty by centre bounce attendances that averages a goal a game in 2023. Uh, Connor Rosie at Port Adelaide was close. He he averages 0.95 goals a game, and and even though he does attend, you know, about 20 centre bounces a game, he does also spend a little bit of time forward. And and I suspect if we drilled into that, we'd find that most of his goals came playing as a forward rather than a midfielder. Uh, and then there were Bontempelli and Taranto who are averaging 0.9 goals a game. I mean, Bontempelli is just a, a freak of nature, and, and Taranto surprisingly since he got the roasting by um, Kane Corns has, has turned himself into a really reliable kicker goal. Um, so they average 0.9 goals a game this year. And then Jordan Tagoe is averaging 0.88 goals a game. There were 11 center bounce midfielders in total that average half a goal or more a game. Merritt was ranked 16th among the 50 that I looked at, equal with Jack Viney on 0.42 goals a game and just ahead of Ton Liberatore and Luke Parker on 0.37 goals a game. Luke Parker surprised me a little bit. He's one that we associate uh, with kicking a, a fair few goals, but you know, what we've seen with him this year is he spent a lot more time in at the centre bounce and in the midfield and and therefore not getting forward and kicking goals. Uh, Parrish was 35th at 0.2 goals a game. That wouldn't surprise anybody. We we know he he hasn't kicked a lot of goals this year. Uh, But just for some context, you know, he's just behind uh, Caleb Sarong from Fremantle, who's a kick 0.21 or average 0.21 goals a game. And he's ahead of guys like Laird and, and Lockie Neal at, at 0.16 and 0.15. So, uh, you know, they're, they're two of the the more uh, predominant uh, contested ball winners and clearance winners in the competition. And, and, and Darcy's sort of aligned with them. So that makes sense. Uh, then I had a look at, at goal assists. And uh, the number one in this was actually Sam Hayes, the, the ruckman from Port Adelaide, but he's only played the one game and, and ranks first. So, um, yeah, we, we can probably ignore him. Uh, There's no one else that's averaging a goal assist or more a game. Uh, there were 22 that average half half an assist or more. Merritt's one of those. He's ninth on 0.74 a game. Parrish 30th on 0.4 a game. And then I thought I'd combine the two and just have a quick look at goals plus goal assists. And and you do get a true sense of how unique and, and how much of a freak Bontempelli is and, and how well Jordan Tagoe was going before he got injured. He hasn't quite had the impact since he's come back. Um, but they rank one and two on 1.8 and 1.75 goals plus goals assists combined respectively this season. Uh, Rosie is third with 1.6. 19 out of the 50 average one plus per game um, goals and goals and assists combined. The Bulldogs have three in that list of of 19. Port has two, but one is Hayes, as I said, which we can ignore. Frio and the Ds um, have two each, and then there are four clubs with zero. 
Uh, from an Essendon perspective, Merritt was ninth. He he averages 1.16 goals plus goal assist a game and Parrish was 33rd at, at 0.6. So, uh, so yeah, so, some interesting um, uh, interesting look there to see how our two sort of dominant centre bounce midfielders stack up in terms of score um, scoreboard impact against some of the other guys in the competition. Yeah, and you also looked at score involvement. So a player being having a disposal within a possession chain that, that eventually leads to a score. Uh, what did you notice from that? Yeah, I did. I, I mean, set of bounce mids aren't kicking a lot of goals and, and they're not directly setting them up at, unless they're, you know, names of Bontempelli, Taranto, Rosie or, or Dugowie. So, you know, there's sort of four in the competition that are doing something really quite unique. And, uh, you know, Bontempelli is arguably the best player in the competition. So uh, no no surprises, uh, the influence that they're having. And and what you do expect your centre bounce midfielders to do is win the footy and create scoring opportunities that way. Clayton Oliver was number one at 8.1 score involvements a game. Bonson Pally, number two, at, at 7.7. 7. Uh, and then, you know, the, there's two clubs who have two players in the top 10 for score involvements out of the 50 midfielders I looked at. Uh, so Stephen Coniglio was ranked third and Tom Green uh, was ranked fourth, both from uh, GWS. And then the other team, the only other team to have two in the top 10 was actually Essendon. So uh, Darcy Parrish is ranked fifth for score involvements amongst that that top 50 midfielders group or, or top 50 by centre bounce attendances and, and Zach Merritt was ninth. So I think, you know, in, in terms of our own mix, it's it's work in progress but with what Parrish and Merritt are doing is a pretty good base to to build upon. We're, they're helping us to to create scoring chains out of the midfield and, and that's obviously a, a really important first step. Um, you know, Perkins has kicked 17 goals this season, which is one more than last year already and, and starting to play more and more as that hybrid bid forward that, you know, is closer to to something that we're seeing at Petrarca and, and the likes play, Dangerfield, um, etc. And then Nick Martin, you know, he, he's he been down. He's only kicked the one goal in the last five weeks. But up until that point, he'd kicked 13 goals for the season from a from a wing and, and able to hit the scoreboard there. So, you know, we're, we're starting to find some of the right pieces, I think, in terms of having a, a midfield or a midfield group that is able to to impact the scoreboard, but do it in different ways, you know, not necessarily all directly through kicking goals, but certainly we're getting some guys who can contribute to it quite readily. Yeah, and that's it. It's not like, you know, a game like basketball where it's easy for one player to take the ball down the down the down the court and potentially score from that. You know, you've you've got to have players working together and, you know, you've got different aspects of that. You know, the player that gets the ball out, the player that, you know, gets it out to the, the runner and then the runner kicks it inside and the players inside there. So it's a whole ecosystem that, that's got to work together and different players have different strengths that they can contribute to generating those scores overall. Yeah, that's really well said, mate. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's enough of uh, death by data, though. Let's. Uh, what else has happened this week? I, I guess the the big news is uh, has been the announcement that Andrew Phillips has retired. Yeah, so obviously, arguably the best season of his career. It's the one he's played the most games in, and he's been in really good form. Um, he's obviously decides to retire at the age of thirty two. Um, you know, it can't be easy being on an AFL list for, for 12 years where you, you're constantly seen as a backup to the main men. But it, it seems that Andrew was never a complainer and always did what was best for the team. And that meant that when he did give his opportunities, he always gave his all to try and get the side over the line. So I think, you know, people will always refer back to his matchup against Grundy uh, back in 2020. Stands out as, as the performance I think will stick with people the most for him in the Nessendon jumper. But, you know, going back to even earlier this year, um, the partnership with Draper that, that he built, especially in that Melbourne game where they went up against uh, Gorn and Grundy, um, they kicked five goals between them and then, then showed glimpses of what could have been a strong combination. Um, from all reports, he was a fantastic clubman and I think he'll be missed. So, yeah, thanks for your time with Essendon, Andrew. Yeah, I, some great footage wasn't there of him doing some coaching with the AFL women's program uh, and, and the like, it, it, he does seem like he's the the ultimate club man. And uh, footy clubs need guys like that who are who are just prepared to to work really hard and and take their turn when when they're called upon. So yeah, um, and, and obviously making a a selfless decision and, and doing what's best for his family and, and moving back to Tassie. So yeah, it, I'm, I'm sure he'll be missed. And um, uh, yeah, it's something that we're going to need to to look to address in in the off season, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it comes down to those questions around list management and what's going to happen there. From one point of view, it, it's one of the three list changes to our main list that we're forced to make each year. So it actually probably 
could potentially save someone that could have been forced off the list if he had stayed. Um, and it also also raised questions about how you go replacing his role. Now, a lot of the conversations are about to have are assuming that Brian does resign. And I, my imagination is that Darcy Parrish is the key target. And once he signs or chooses not to sign, then a lot of the other dominoes will start to fall there. And uh, based on what we've seen, hopefully he does resign. Um, if he does resign, that leaves us at the start of next year with a 25-year-old Sam Draper and a 22-year-old Nick Bryan as the primary rucks. You obviously do have players like Peter Wright and Sam Wiedemann who have shown that they can pinch hit in the ruck. And then you've got players of the size of Nick Cox and, and Zach Reid who have the height to potentially play ruck. Do you, would you go into this next season with those on the list or do you think you have to bring in another ruck option? Yeah, no, I think we absolutely have to bring in another ruck option, mate. I, I mean, let's hope that Draper is on top of his injury and it's not something that he's going to have to manage throughout his career. But he's missed a fair bit of footy this season and, and you know, I think he's now up to week eight or nine or, or ten um, <laughs> out. Um, so, and, and they don't seem to have really good clarity on on you know at, at no stage how long that was going to take to recover from so so hopefully that's not something that's going to be ongoing and 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 this is it but it's always a bit of a worry isn't it um so uh so yeah so that would cause a little bit of concern and you know whilst Brian is improving he's raw and he's still got growing to do and and you know we until he's done it you, you can't rely on him being able to play 22 games or, or 23 games as a, an AFL ruckman so yeah I, I think Assuming that that Brian stays, we we absolutely need another experienced ruckman on the list to to help us get through the next little bit. Yeah, so I guess the next question is, what sort of player do you brought in? I I asked a poll on Twitter what Essendon fans thought about bringing an experienced, mature age ruck as, as a backup in the Silla vein to when Phyllis was recruited as backup to Bell Chambers and having Draper as a developing ruck. Or do you go for a young ruck that might not be ready to go, but would have a greater ceiling than, than someone could be brought in as a support ruck? So the fans voted 63 to 37 in favour of the experienced ruck, and, and that's the pathway I probably would go down. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, I would absolutely um, look to bring a, in an, an experienced ruckman similar to what we've done here with um, with – uh, with Andrew Phillips, sorry, I, uh, we've spent five minutes talking about him and I've forgotten his name already. Uh, that's no reflection on on how I value or, or respect his contribution to the club. So, um, so yeah, I I, I think uh, getting an experienced ruckman on the assumption that um, that Andrew Phillips, uh, sorry, that that Nick Bryan stays on is is the way that we need to go. Thought you were trying to recall the the great year we had Zach Clark on the list there, and you just you know you wiped it from your memory. But um, look, it, it's hard to know what's available in that role. So I, I did have a look at a uh, friend of the show, Jasper Shalapa from the Flight Pans uh, latest ESPN draft rankings, just to get a sense of who potentially could be available. Obviously he's doing, you know, the high end of the draft at this stage and Mitchell Edwards from Western Australia is 207 centimeters. And, you know, around where our first pick looks likely to land somewhere where he, that's where his value is. But as you sort of say, given the nature of the list, I doubt, you know, you want to be expending a first rounder, on a ruck option, unless Nick Bryan did leave. Um, and almost even then, I think there's bigger holes to fill. And it's something we actually discussed last year. I think rucks are, can be the last piece of a puzzle that you put in place to to really push for a premiership. So the need for an absolute outstanding ruck at this season, at this point, um, might not be necessary. And then you start looking at the mature options. So I did ask people to post their suggestions. And a lot of people did mention Grundy, who seemingly is going to be available, but he's not going to go somewhere where he's not going to be the number one option. And I don't think we've invested this much in Draper and Brian to to bring a number one ruck in over the top of them. Uh, the players that did other players that did get the most mentions were Braden Pruce and, and Matt Flynn from GWS, uh, both of whom are seemingly be passed by Kieran Briggs. Um, so they're potential options, but again, are you, are you really going to a place where you're going to be the third man when you know, both of those potentially could be second or first at other clubs? Um, and maybe you yeah, have to bring in someone from a state league. So, um, yeah, any thoughts there? Yeah, I, I mean, Braden Proust is a player that, that sort of concerns me. Uh, I, I'm not sure I'd, I'd go there. When I say that, I, I just mean that he's... <laughs> He's been at three clubs now. If he came to us and we'd be our fourth, and he, and he's never really uh, cracked it and 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 seemed to have um, to really improved or developed his game. So I know we'd be bringing someone in as a 
as a third rucker or, or a backup, but you ultimately want them also putting pressure on the likes of Draper and Brian to continue to play a high standard of footy um, because, uh, you know, if they're not that you've got someone waiting in the wings who can replace them. We do have Jaden Hunter on our rookie list, our mid-season rookie pick from from this year. He played a fair bit of his junior football as a ruckman. If he stays, that that gives us a little bit of, of young or junior depth in, in that position. Uh, but the experienced ruck I'd be looking at is – is Scott Lysette for a few reasons. He's, he's at, you know, at when he's fitting up and going, he's, he's a really good um, senior big bodied uh, Ruckman. He's been in a successful system. He's, he's a premiership player at West coast. Uh, so, you know, he sort of uh, brings some experience and some know-how to our list that we don't have a, a lot of. I think uh, you might pick me up him wrong, mate, but I think, Jake Stringer is the only premiership player on our list at the moment. So, uh, you know, that that gives us another level of experience that we just don't have. And, um, you know, he's only played the 12 games this year. He's been pushed out of the, the port side by a fair bit. He's big, he's competitive, he's, combative, he's, he's got, you know, some of that real aggressive nature about his game that, that we just don't have a lot of. So, yeah, I think he's still got some footy. I think he turns 31, you know, towards the end of this year. So, um, you know, he, he still would have two or three years of, of good footy um, available in him, so yeah, he he's one that I would pursue. Should um, should Brian stay, and and we're in the market for for a third ruckman to to join our list. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it does play out. Well, look, let's finally turn our attention to our opponents this week in North Melbourne. And you know, in last week's episode, we really didn't spend a lot of time on West Coast, given that we'd already played them, and they were at the bottom of the ladder. And look how that turned out. So let's take a bit of a a good look at North Melbourne and, and see if anything's changed since we last played them back in round 12. Um, they're a side we haven't lost to in the past nine matches. So we're actually going for a perfect 10 this week. So yeah, well, I've just jinxed us there, but we'll see how that goes. Um, look, North are currently on an 18 match losing streak. They've played eight games since their previous match against the Bombers. Uh, in that time, they've come close to beating St Kilda. They lost by eight points after leading for much of the second half. And West Coast in Perth, they they lost by five points after kicking the last four goals in the final term. It just saw them fall short. Uh, if you look at their data between last time we looked at it and, and this this game, coming game, uh, they're still one of the poorest teams going inside 50. They only enter 46 times per match, and that's actually down from 47 and a half when we last played them. And when they do that, they're only scoring it 43% of the time. No team lets their opposition inside 50 more either. Uh, they're conceding 58.7 inside 50s a game. And then their opposition score 50% of the time they enter. And, and that's the second worst in the comp. Uh, one of the things they could hang their hat on last time was their ability at, at stoppage. They were the best in the comp at winning stoppage clearances when we played them. They were at plus four compared to their opponents. Um, now they've dropped to six in the comp and at the moment they're winning on only on average one more than their opponent. So it's something that's dropped a little bit away in the past few weeks um, and their contested possession numbers have also dropped. So they've gone from minus 4.5 a game to, to minus nine. Um, and then even then, despite losing contested ball, they're also the worst tackling side in the competition. So they're down six a game on their opponent. So they're str- struggling in the contested ball, which is something you'd expect them to at least really, you know, push other sides in. Um, and then when they don't have the ball, they're really struggling to put pressure on it and tackle their opponents. Um, look, you've, looked into the major differences in their play, depending on who's been coaching them, obviously with Alistair Clarkson returning uh, to the main seat. What have you found? Yeah, I was curious to have a little bit of a look at the Clarkson v Ratton numbers and there's nothing noticeably different uh, as you'd expect. You know, Brett Ratton was a, a caretaker there to to carry out Clarkson's game plan. He, he was unlikely to throw that out and and go rogue. And there's been a 50-50 split now between the two coaches. They, they've both coached 10 games each and not not huge changes. They they kick the ball slightly more and handball slightly less under Clarkson. So eight more kicks a game and, and 2.2 less handballs. They concede 4.6 less inside 50s under Clarkson, but their opponents were less effective at scoring under Brett Ratton. So uh, so when Clarkson's coached that the opposition teams aren't getting the ball inside 50 as as often, but uh, they're, they're when they do get in, they're, they're scoring more effectively than they were under Ratton. So, um, you know, 48% of the time, under Brett Ratton, opposition teams were scoring. Uh, and then under Clarkson, that's jumped to 52%. A slightly better contested team under Clarkson, but can see 10 more marks. So, the, and, you know, the defensive metrics are all largely similar. So, yeah, not not huge changes made. I think it's probably just uh, 
a little bit more of a focus, it seems, uh, in and around the contest um, under Brett Ratton, which is probably leading. Sorry, under Alistair Clarkson, which has probably led them just to to uh, to kick the ball and, and move it a little bit less by hand, so a little bit less run and carry um, in the way they're playing. But yeah, uh, that's about it. And mate, let's uh, have a quick look back at the last time we played North. It was um, it wasn't the greatest spectacle, but let's uh, just have a quick look back at at how that one went. Yeah, so. Uh, if you can remember that far back, uh, Essendon 16-9-105, defended North Melbourne 15-9-99. It was, it was a seesawing game. Essendon got out to an early lead before North kicked six goals in a row. Uh, Essendon got back to parity early in the third, and then there were six lead changes before a late goal to Massimo D'Ambrosio, who was a sub, saw Essendon escape with a six-point victory. Uh, it was a game where North dominated the centre clearances 18-10 to and were up 11 in contested possessions while Sessner did win stoppage 28 to 22, North did score more from stoppage 44 to 32. It's actually something we spoke about uh, a bit earlier in the show that despite often winning, when we do win stoppage, we, we still don't score as well as other teams from that source. Um, and this was down, you know, in spite of the fact that, you know, probably their best midfielder in Luke Davies, Uniaki was absent. And then both Jai Simkin and, and Hugh Greenwood, who are, who are strong contested winners, uh, went down during the game. Um, you know, so you know, Wardlaw and, and Phillips and a few others really carried them there and, and did a fantastic job in that area of the game. Um, but it was Essendon's best game of the year in generating goals from forward 50 turnovers. You, you sort of highlighted earlier that it was the first game where you could tell that we were really pushing up and, and trying to generate those forward 50 turnovers. And we kicked five goals from that source. Uh, Cam Zerhard led the way for North with four goals. Um, and their bigs in, in Larkin and Coleman Jones both kicked two apiece. Um, former defender Kyle Langford kicked four goals for Essendon, whilst uh, Perkins, Merritt, Martin and Guelphy both all kicked two. Um, Merritt had 34 disposals and eight clearances, and, and Will Phillips and the now-retired Aaron Hall had 27 for North. Yeah, I think from memory that was North Melbourne's third game without Clarkson at the helm, and, and we're now going to play them in his second game back. So it's sort of interesting the way that that's turned around on itself. Uh, I think that that was the first time I saw a real distinct change in the way that we were trying to defend the ground and to get higher up in that ground. Up until that point, we'd been relying on intercepting the ball in our back 50 and then transitioning it forward. It, it, in that game, it meant that we leaked some goals over the back. It, you know, North Melbourne were able to get the ball up, you know, over the back and, and enable the likes of Zerha to to really influence on the scoreboard. So, uh, you know, it was a game where there was a real shift in the way that we were starting to defend the ground. And, um, uh, you know, I think we, we did a lot of things right, but the, probably besides the the contest in that one and uh, the result was probably a little bit closer than we ever should have really allowed it. But there's been a few of those games now this year, haven't there? Yeah. Well, look, let's turn our attention to selection. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think there's probably a lot of disappointed Essendon fans with the, the lack of changes and, you know, I think we've just got to see how things play out. But uh, in comes Will Snelling for Essendon. Uh, out goes Jai Caldwell with a hip. He was, was managed on the weekend but couldn't get up for this game. And Owen Davy Jr. as the sub has, has headed back to the emergency list so along with Sam Wiedemann. Will Setterfield uh, potentially could play his first game in over over 10 weeks since his injury um, and Kane Baldwin as well. My, my first thought is I'm a really – Bit disappointed we haven't seen Wanganeen get a chance after his four goals in the VFL. We've been crying out for small forward pressure and, you know, he hasn't had an opportunity this year. Um, although it was mentioned by Scooter from the Lunchtime Catch-Up podcast on Twitter that when he was at training, he was in the rehab group. Um, so I'm guessing that's the reason he hasn't even made the emergencies. Um, from the emergency list, I, I would expect Davey to be the sub again. There's no VFL game this weekend. So, you know, he's either the sub or he's, he's not playing anything. So, you know, getting him some game time, I think is beneficial. Maybe they will go with, with Setterfield, but he really does not strike me as, as a good sub option. Uh, the other interesting thing will be where Martin plays and, you know, uh, champion data through SEN. Uh, he's gone from ranked eighth in their rankings up to round 16, um, playing uh, 76% wing time. And, and since that moment, he, he's dropped his wing time down to 22%. And that's meant he's dropped to the 240th ranked player. There must be some reason why that move's been made when he's been doing so well in that position. Uh, what are your thoughts about it, Jono? 
Yeah, I, I, these are all assumptions. Unfortunately, as fans, we we get a real disservice from AFL media and, and journos who don't ask any particularly useful particularly useful questions at press conferences. So we just don't know. Uh, I'd obviously hope we see more Nick Martin on the wing this week. And uh, whilst I, I like him at half forward, I think he's played some really good footy there, you know, across his two seasons to date. And um, and I, I suspect that part of the reason that we've made that move is because our connection between half forward and our midfield has been really, really poor for a number of weeks now. And uh, and maybe it was seen that he could have been part of the solution, particularly with Perkins spending more time in the midfield. But, you know, I think all we've ultimately done there is is tried to cover one weakness and, and then given ourselves two. So, uh, yeah, not not a move that I think has, has paid off. And, uh, you know, we, we've run with it for, what, three weeks now, and and, and hopefully that that's come to an end. I, I don't mind that we're trying players in new positions and trying to find new roles for them. I think, you know, someone like Jake Kelly has played enough good footy for us this year. We know he's got a high work rate uh, and we know that we lack players that can run up and back, that can close space defensively and open it up offensively. So Jake Kelly fits the profile of, of a player that that might have been able to do that. Um, and, and you know, if he's potentially out of the plans for our back six going forward and um, we know how important uh, sort of cohesion is in in that back six, and and Brad Scott's been uh, really um, uh, reluctant to to change that, um, and and wanting to get them to play games together. Maybe Ridley uh, coming out injured has thrown that you know, that sort of plan out. But it's probably a suggestion there that that maybe Kelly is out of the plans for the back six going forward. And, and you know, if that is the, what's behind it and they're looking to see if they can find another position, I think he's deserved the opportunity to do that. Um, and then, you know, they tried Snelling there as well. You know, he's been playing, you know, less forward, a bit more wing and midfield. And and again, you know, he's, he's played some good footy for us. He, he works hard. Um, uh, you know, he's a real trier. Uh, so I don't, again, I don't have any problems with them experimenting and, and seeing whether they can find another role for him. But yeah, I, I think we, we've kind of cooked that, uh, you know, or overcooked it now and, and it's time to sort of roll that back. And, and I think the other thing they could, could have done, mate, is I don't think Sam Durham's been playing really good footy over the last sort of five to six weeks. I think he's really dropped off. He's looking quite tired. Like if they wanted to try some things on that other wing, they they could have left him out and, and given him a bit of a freshen up and, and a bit of a rest. You know, he's played almost every game since he he got drafted in the middle of 2021 wasn't it so um you know it, it's a big ask for a guy to who's really only had um uh, you know two pre-seasons to play that much footy on a wing so uh so yeah i, I i'm not sure i'm in nabbed exactly so the concept of it i'm i'm supportive of and i i like it the the practicalities of how we've gone about it just feels a little bit off to me. But, um, I, I, you know, <laughs> I said to someone uh, on Twitter yesterday, I'm I, I'm sure there's method, there's a method to it. Um, and I just hope that uh, the madness that it's caused us as fans is justified at the end of it. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, selection as a whole has been a little bit frustrating lately. It, it's not something that I typically buy into the conversation all that much. Uh, but, you know, Snelling going from sub to to being admitted to not playing in the VFL to back in the 22 is just not one that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I, I just hope that the conversations with the young guys knocking the door down are, are really clear and they know what's expected of them and it's not creating any, any issues there. I, I, I don't suspect that's the case. We've got a lot of really um, smart and experienced heads in our development group now. So, so you would hope that those guys are getting the right messages. Yeah, absolutely. Fingers crossed. Let's quickly look at North Melbourne. So in comes Ben Cunnington and George Wardlaw. Uh, Out goes Will Phillips, who who played quite well against us last time. Uh, Robert Hanson Jr. And then their sub, Charlie Lazaro, has also been omitted. Um, Obviously, Cunnington is is back in for his final game. And obviously, congratulations to him on an excellent career of no fuss, hard at it football. Um, And he's come back from cancer, obviously, is an inspiration. And I expect he'll receive a warm reception from Essendon fans, as well as from his own this weekend. Um, Warlaw's back, the, the guy that made Clarkson want to come back to coaching. Um, and it just really adds to a, a powerful inside mix at North had we talked about it earlier. But, you know, Goldstein in the ruck is, is still performing close to the peak of his powers. And then you've got Luke Davies-Uniak. Uh, Taron Thomas has had some big clearance numbers in the past few weeks. Uh, Jaya Simkin, Cunnington. Um, it's really their one wood going to this game. And we're really going to have to be at our best to combat it. 
Yeah, it's going to be a big moment for them. Um, Cunnington's obviously been a champion of that club, and uh, you know he he's one of those players. Regardless of who you barrack for, it, you know he's hard not to like it. It's um, he he reminds me in a lot of ways to to Darren Goff back when he was uh, opening the bowling for England. You know you you hated the Poms, but uh, Goff was one that you always you know hoped would be an Australian and and, and would have been happy to see play for your team. And, and I think Ben Cunnington's one of those he's just been an absolute worry for them and uh i don't particularly like north melbourne as as most people would know but he he's a player that's hard not to you know uh want good things for uh but that doesn't extend to to a win in his final afl game that's for sure yeah well look uh north had a bit of a promising uh start to their game uh last week against, against melbourne obviously top four side and it was a bit of a a theme last week of top four sides struggling but melbourne uh you know bucked that trend a little bit by getting out to a, a 32 point win after falling behind early. Uh, North jumped out of the blocks. They kicked six goals in a row and they, they got to a 33 point lead. Um, but Melbourne has kicked 10 of the last 12 goals to run out comfortable 32 point winners. Um, look, as you'd expect with a North Melbourne side, the clearance battle was, was fairly even. Um, but Melbourne dominated the game outside the clearance. So they generated 30 more contested possessions. So they won the ball a lot when it was outside of the clearance. Um, had five more intercepts and, and then 24 more inside 50s, which is, is what results in that that margin there. Um, Eddie Ford for the Kangaroos uh, set up their lead with three goals in the first half and uh, veteran Ruckman Todd Goldstein kicked two. Uh, with the ball mostly being Melbourne's Ford 50, uh, the defenders in, in Jack Siebel and, and Bailey Scott dominated possession. They had 32 and 31 respectively. And then, you know, uh, Taron Thomas, as I mentioned, um, had 10 clearances from his 23 possessions. So really good in that area of the ground. Yeah, isn't um, Todd Goldstein still playing some some really good footy? Despite I think he's you know approaching pension age now, but yeah, he's yeah he he's really still um, having a big impact on on their footy club. And Eddie Ford's a, a really exciting play for them. Uh, you know, if, if you're a Roos fan, I, I suspect that there's some players that are running around that are, are giving some hope for the future. Um, I decided to give myself a bit of a football detox on on Saturday night and Sunday, and, and didn't watch this game. I, I did see the the mini match on on Ko in between buffering, um, but yeah, and then ended up watching our replay about seven times instead. So my detox didn't last all that long. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't look into this game all that closely. I, I do have to to admit it. It's a bit of a nothing stat really, but it is a bit of a pattern for North this year. They've they've started games okay. They've, they've been okay in first quarters. Uh, and, and then you know faded out of the game, and that's very much what's happened uh, here. They've they've won five first halves of the season, which isn't a lot um, in in twenty games. Let's be honest, but uh, they've only won the three second halves. So yeah, they, they really haven't been able to to run out games all that effectively well. Yeah, well, look, let's turn to uh, the North game this weekend. Uh, they're second last on the ladder, as we sort of pointed out numerous times. They've, they've got some weapons which could really cause us issues. How do you see this game playing out? Yeah, well, I think with Clarkson back for the second week, he, he's obviously never been a big Essen fan, and and Ben Cunnington, as we've spoken about, he's a, a favourite son down at Arden Street, and and you know one of the all time great shin boners, whatever shin boner means. But um, yeah, you you can expect that they're really going to come out and, and fly the flag, and I think this will be a game that will be pretty hot and heated early, and, and North will want to throw plenty at us. So I think the first thing that we need to do is just wear that early storm and and get through it. I think we've. I mean, there's some exceptions to this, right? We, we've been blown away by Geelong um, uh, early, a, a couple of games, but North Melbourne are a long way from that. But, you know, Anzac Day, we started the game pretty well. Dreamtime, we started the game reasonably well. Um, so I think, you know, that there's been some big moments and big games where we, we've done a good job. You know, the Ds in, in Gather Round was, was another one of those examples. So I think, you know, we, we just need to remain composed early, get through that first 15 minutes without um, allowing North Melbourne to really hit the scoreboard and, and know that once that hot and bother and fluster is out of their game, we, we should be able to to start to get the games on on our terms and, and, and know that North are going to fade away. So I think beyond that point, there's just some real um, important measures that we just want to get right. North hasn't won contested ball since they played us in round 12. They've, uh, they've been averaging minus 19 a game in, in contested ball differential since then. So we should be looking to go at plus six a quarter and, and you know, sort of get this game to plus 24 at, at the end of the game in contested ball. We want to be 
winning the ball off them in our forward 50 and in the middle of the ground, you put last week behind us and, and, and prove that we haven't waved the flag or, or the white flag for 2023. We haven't put the queue in the rack and, and really push up and, and close space quickly. If we can do that, that would mean, you know, we should be able to hit 60 inside fifties for the game, which would be, you know, 15 a quarter uh, and, and keep North Melbourne to their season average of 46 and then forward pressure is going to play a big part in that. So we had 16 inside 50 tackles and, and kick five goals, one from forward 50 turnovers against North last time out. Against the Crows, was, it was probably the other game where we really demonstrated that ability to pressure and win the ball back. We kicked seven goals, five behinds from forward half turnovers. So I think they're the benchmarks for us. So I'd like to see us get up to those levels and, and have a, a – a, an Essendon season high or, or thereabouts game for pressure and, and scores from forward half turnovers. Yeah. So big challenge for, for those players who are playing that small forward role. So Guelphie and, and Menzi and, and Snelling coming in this week, you know, I, I think we've been questioning a little bit about their effectiveness the last few weeks. So big challenge for them. And I guess for North Melbourne's players, who do you think we really should be focusing on? Yeah, there's three for me. Uh, like Luke Davies, Uniac is, is one of them. He was out injured the last time we played them. He's the first player I think we should be looking to put some time into. He's, he's 188 centimetres. He's about 90 kilos. He's their big contested ball winner. He averages nearly 14 contested possessions a game and, and ranked 11th in the AFL um, and, and averages 4.6 stoppage clearances a game, which is ranked fourth in the AFL. He's their number one ranked player for disposals. And, and without Zerha playing, he's their number one for inside 50s and, and score involvements as well. I expect he'll attend about 80% of their centre bounces and be their main man in there. So he's the one that our defensive midfielder needs to go to at the stoppage and, and look to respect, uh, look to restrict. So, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a tag. Um, you know, Caldwell's not there. I, I don't think we want Perkins playing 100% of, of game time in the midfield this week um, because I would hope that that with Caldwell going out, there's some time for Sardis in the middle this week, given that North have a young midfield and he can play against some of his peers. So, uh, so yeah, I think it's just a matter of whether it's it's Perkins through there or it's Parish at times or or um, or it's Hobbs that that they're being really mindful in that defensive role and, and not allowing easy access to the footy for LDU. Taron Thomas is the next one. He's averaged 18 disposals a game and, and a goal a game in his nine games since coming back from his third or fourth or fifth chance or whoever, however many he's had now. But he's been playing about 50% of midfield time and uh, it'll be a bit of an interesting watch to see what role he plays. I think with Cunnington you know, playing his last game, they want to get him in the midfield uh, and, and Caldwell, uh, sorry, Wardlaw back. Um, it, it might mean that we see... Um, Taron Thomas play a little bit more at half forward and it also wouldn't surprise me to see him play some footy at half back but he's a player that I think you just need to be really physical with you need to make sure that you've got your handovers organized when he's moving between the zones uh, because you don't want him to free wheel and and do the things that we saw Tim Kelly do against us last week because he's a he's a much better kick and can really hurt us if we allow him to to free wheel and then the third one, mate, I'd like us to have a, a close look at is Harry Sheasel. He's a, a really exciting player. He's their preferred ball user out of their back 50 if they can get it to him. He's averaging 26 disposals a game, which is ranked second at North Melbourne. He's had an incredible year for a first-year player, but he's only kicking the ball at 68%, which is pretty low. Uh, you know, you compare that to Andrew McGrath, who rightly receives criticism for his kicking. He kicks at 72% this season, Nick Hind at 80, Redman at nearly 82%. So, you know, compared to, to some of our distributors, he, he's kicking the ball below them. Um, and, you know, like a lot of young players, he's vulnerable under pressure. And I'd, I'd really like us to see us take that pressure to him. He averages 3.6 clangers a game, which, you know, for a defender is quite high. For for context, Redmond is at 2.5 and, and he's our most. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think it's a bit of a win-win here for us. If we can... If we can limit his space, limit his effectiveness, then we take away his ability to to really set them up and, and move the ball forward. And then um, and I think if we can put him under enough pressure, he's vulnerable to coughing the ball up, which will create scoring opportunities for us. Yeah, and I, I, I just want to go back to what you mentioned about Taron Thomas. I think one of the big absences for North this week is, is Zerhar, and he obviously had a big impact last time. And Taron Thomas has some fairly similar characteristics physically to what Zerhar brings. So, you know, with the centre square midfielders that they've brought in, they may want to play him in that role. You know, he's probably not going to be as effective as a Zerhar in that role, but he, he could play a similar way and, and, and cause us issues there. Well, we're going to turn to our, our final thoughts. We've 
uh, and with Phillips announcing his retirement and the potential of Draper coming back next week, you think this could potentially be Andrew's last game for the Bombers? Yeah, it's an interesting one, mate. I, I think if we if we win, our season is alive, and and uh, he probably plays ahead of Brian until that's no longer the case. Um, and you know, if we were to to get enough wins on the board and and make it into a final, then I would imagine that that Draper and and Phillips would be our preferred um, combination. But if we were to go down this week, and, and let's hope that's not not the case, um, I, I would think that. Uh, I know there'd be a temptation to rest Draper and, and just put him out for the rest of the year, but but I think him and, and Nick Bryan playing a couple of games together uh, are um, is probably the right move for for them working together going forward. So uh, so yeah, mate, I, I I'm I'm really hoping it's not the last time we see him. I hope he's got another couple of games to go because our season's still alive and and we're still you know hanging on to to a finals opportunity with everything we've got. Yeah, another six games after this would be will be handy in retiring with a premiership medal. Now we can all dare to dream. Uh, well, look, that, that'll wrap us up for this week. Uh, as always, thanks to everyone who's discussed the things we've brought up on the show and on Twitter with us. Uh, the conversations are mostly thoughtful and considerate. Um, I think we, we talk about this a lot, but I think we've built up a really good community around the Donnerstadt, and I'm really looking forward to that continuing. Um, as always, thanks to your efforts this week. Jono, any final words from you? You know, it's been really nice to see some of the uh, the analysis that we've put together get shared on on other channels and in other forums, and and it's helping to add to a bit of a conversation and and even education at times around how we're playing and and how some of our players are performing and how that compares to to other players in the competition. So yeah, keep keep up that. We yeah, we really love it. And if there's ever any questions or, or things that that you might want us to look into, then you can email us via donthestat at gmail. Dot com, or you can hit Ian or I up on Twitter or find our Facebook page, which is Dobbinstad on Facebook. So, yeah, thanks, everyone, for for um, being involved and, and joining in the conversation. Looking forward to Saturday. Yeah, well, well said, Jono. Stay safe, everyone, and go Dons. <laughs>